When did we stop caring about honesty and integrity? Maybe you heard Superintendent Ted Hastings say that in last Sunday's episode of Line of Duty. Ted Hastings might have been talking about a corrupt police force, but I'm sure that as you've lived in this fallen world, that is a question that has come to your mind as well. Because we live in a world that is caring less and less about integrity, don't we? And just like in Line of Duty, so often the corruption in our world goes right to the very top. As a nation, we are led by people who seem to be showing less and less integrity. To find evidence of that, you only need to turn on the news to hear about things like a former Prime Minister trying to influence current Treasury Ministers on behalf of the finance firm he works for. Or yet another inquiry a political leader has squirmed out of. And sadly, it's not just in the world where we find leaders who lack integrity. We, f we hear far too often of Christian leaders who have had integrity implosions, whether it's spiritual abuse, sexual misconduct, embezzlement, angry outbursts. Whatever it might be, when a leader falls, the results are always devastating, both for the people under their ministry who trusted them and for the reputation of Christ in the place where they ministered. It can't be overstated that when it comes to gospel ministry, integrity is critical. In fact, integrity is crucial for all believers. Before you switch off and think that this passage is only going to apply to church leaders, let me remind you that Ephesians 4 verse 12 tells us that all church members are recruited to take part in the work of gospel ministry. Whether it's at the dinner table, in the office, in a small group, over a coffee, wherever it might be, we are all called to gospel ministry. Integrity implosions in any context can cause the same kind of damage to the reputation of Christ in a community. We all have a role as ambassadors of Christ that God's word calls us to take seriously. So how do we maintain our integrity in a fallen world? Well, that's the question being answered here at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And here it is in a nutshell. We are to be faithful to God in all we do because God has been faithful to us. We're to be faithful to God in all we do because God has been faithful to us. In other words, as Christians, our integrity should be a reflection of God's integrity. That's the message that Paul wants to get across to the church in Corinth. And what prompted Paul to give the Corinthians this message about integrity is that his own integrity is being challenged. As we've seen, there's been a smear campaign against Paul in Corinth that has been spearheaded by this group of Jewish TED-talking braggers, or as Paul calls them, the super apostles, who have been saying that they're the real deal and that Paul isn't legit. That's why from the start of the letter until now, Paul's been laying out what a genuine gospel minister looks like. Now, the latest smear that this group have thrown at Paul is a charge against his integrity. Paul finds himself in a similar situation that many of the people in Line of Duty find themselves in, sitting in the interview room in AC12 as evidence is presented against him. And the evidence that they supposedly have on him is that he changed his travel plans. Paul didn't follow through on what he told the church he would do. 
And this group of troublemakers in Corinth are using this change of plans as evidence that Paul has been acting in a way that was inconsistent with the gospel. They're saying he can't be trusted. Now, to get our heads around this claim, we need to think back to the end of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 16, we can read that Paul originally intended to travel from Ephesus to Macedonia, and after uh, being in Macedonia for a while, he would head to Jerusalem. But on the way from Macedonia to Jerusalem, he said he would stop in Corinth and perhaps even spend the winter there. That was Paul's plan A. But plan A didn't happen. Because before Paul left Ephesus, he got a concerning report about the Corinthians, which prompted him to make a short, unexpected and painful visit. A visit that Paul's about to mention in chapter 2. And during that short and painful visit, Paul revised his plan and he made plan B. And it's plan B we can see here in verses 15 to 16. Paul said he would visit them twice. Once on the way to Macedonia and then again on the way back, on his way uh, to Jerusalem. But plan B didn't happen either. Because following that painful visit, Paul had a change of mind. And he decided instead he would write a letter um, that, that dealt with all the issues he had just seen and to call for repentance. And that letter is now lost. But from chapter 2 verse 4 we know that it was heavy. Paul tells us that he wrote out of great distress and anguish of heart. So instead of going with plan B, after this scathing letter, Paul decides that for their sake, it's best that he lets things cool off. He wants to give the Corinthians time to respond and change. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 23 that he, he didn't come because he wanted to spare them. He felt it was too soon and he didn't want to have another painful visit with them. Okay, so long story short, the Corinthians were expecting two visits and now they're getting a time out. Paul reverts back to plan A and he heads on to Macedonia where he's writing this letter from and he's writing to prepare the Corinthians for the third visit um, on his way back to Jerusalem. So that's the charge and you can, you can almost hear what these troublemakers are saying, can't you? If Paul can't do what he says he's going to do, if he says one thing and does another, then, then obviously he can't be trusted. If he was a true minister of the gospel, he would be reliable. Don't listen to him. Stick with us. We're the real deal. We know what's best. So how is Paul going to respond to these charges? What is his defence going to be? Well, his defence begins with two questions in verse 17. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or did I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? And how Paul answers these questions is surprising. We expect him to come straight out and say, by no means, and then to go into all the various good reasons why he changed his mind and did what he did. But Paul doesn't do that. He answers uh, his own questions by laying out two amazing truths about God's integrity towards believers. And as he lays out these truths, he's doing two things. 
He's going to show the church in Corinth why questioning his integrity doesn't make sense. And he's going to give them the theological basis for his integrity. He wants to show them that he is faithful because God is faithful. So let's look at these two truths about God's integrity. First of all, God's promises are yes in Christ. God's promises are yes in Christ. Look with me to what Paul says in verse 18 to 20. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Do you see Paul's logic here? He's saying that as he has preached the gospel in Corinth, along with Silas and Timothy, their message hasn't been unreliable. It hasn't been yes and no. They have faithfully passed on the message of God's faithfulness to them in Christ. So in response to this charge that he lacks integrity, the first thing he says is, look how faithfully I presented the gospel to you. He's saying, If you can trust me with something as important as the gospel, then surely you can trust me with something as small as my travel plans. If you gave a hedge fund manager £10 and you asked him to go to the shops for you to buy a Kit Kat chunky, you wouldn't question whether or not he brought you back the right change, would you? The hedge fund manager is responsible for millions of pounds. If he can be trusted with that much money, then surely he can be trusted not to shortchange you with such a small amount. Paul is telling the Corinthians that he was faithful with something much more important than his travel plans. And so they can trust that he would never shortchange them. And more than that, he's saying that first and foremost, his integrity is seen in prioritizing the gospel, not in keeping his man-made plans. If God requires him to do something else that would better serve his purposes and the proclamation of the gospel, then he's going to do it. And he certainly doesn't lack integrity if he does. But Paul also has a bigger aim in mind as he makes this point. The main thing he wants to do is to point to the integrity of the God he serves. Paul is saying that this integrity he has as a Christian and as a minister of the gospel is grounded on the fact that God has acted with nothing but integrity towards him and all those who believe. God has shown that, uh, he's shown that integrity because all of the promises he made in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Look at the start of verse 20 again. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. You might not have to do this very often in Scotland, But when the Irish rugby team score a try, I instinctively shout, yes. I shout, yes, because my team has put a score on the board. It's beyond all doubt that the ball has been grounded behind the try line and the points won't be chopped off. A team can talk before the match about what they want to do. They can make all kinds of promises. But until that talk is translated into points on the scoreboard, it doesn't mean very much. 
in Christ, all the promises of God, all the things he said he was going to do are put on the scoreboard and they can't be chopped off. Every promise that God made to his people in the Old Testament finds its yes in him. Every preview in the Old Testament of the Messiah that God would send to rescue and to redeem his people finds its yes in Christ. He is the serpent crusher of Genesis 3.15. He's the offspring of Abraham who will bless all the nations. He is the Davidic king who will reign forever. He is the true and greater Moses who has delivered his people. He is the greater Boaz who brings us into his family and feeds us at his table. He is the son of man in Daniel who is coming on the clouds in glory and whose kingdom will not pass away. He is the greater Joshua who will lead us into the promised land. He has fulfilled all the requirements of the law. He is the true tabernacle and the true temple where all the glory of God dwells. He is the ultimate sacrifice for sin and he is the suffering servant from Isaiah who was wounded for our transgressions and pierced for our iniquities. Brothers and sisters, God is always true to his word. All his promises have come true in Christ. And it's because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can add our yes to all God's promises. That's what we're doing when we say amen at the end of our prayers. We're reaffirming that the promises of God that we've laid hold of in prayer are yes in Christ. Christ has secured them for us. They're on the scoreboard, they're guaranteed. They can't be chalked off. So when you come to God and you want to know if he will forgive your sins, in Christ, the answer is yes. If you want to know if you too can have eternal life, in Christ, the answer is yes. If you want to know if God has a place at his table for you, in Christ the answer is yes. If you want to know if God will give you the strength to fight sin and to stand firm in your faith, in Christ the answer is yes. In sending his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die as the, the ultimate sacrifice for sin and by raising him from the dead, God has proven that he can be trusted. He's proven that he will keep his promises. He has shown his integrity. So the first place Paul goes to demonstrate God's integrity and defend his own integrity is the work of Christ. God's promises are yes in Christ. The second amazing truth that Paul lays out is that God's people are secured by his spirit. God's people are secured by his spirit. Look with me to verse 21 and verse 22. It says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Again, don't miss how what Paul is saying relates to the accusations he is facing. He's saying that both he and the Corinthians are all able to stand firm in Christ because the Holy Spirit has been at work in their lives. He's saying, we are all united together in Christ by the same spirit. So Paul 
is really throwing the ball right back in their court. He's saying, if you doubt me and the integrity that I have by the, by the grace of God, you're really doubting the Spirit's work in my life. And by extension, you're saying that I'm, I'm not in Christ. But if you say that I don't have the Spirit, then you have to doubt the Spirit's work in your own life too and call your own connection to Christ into question because we've all been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. So Paul has dismissed this evidence held against him that he lacks integrity on two accounts. Okay, Number one, if he was faithful in sharing the gospel, then he can be faithful with something much less significant. And now number two, if they say he has acted without integrity, then they all need to deny what's undeniable. They need to say that the spirit hasn't been working in their lives when it was the spirit that established them in Christ in the first place. So these charges aren't going to stick. Paul leaves the interview room with his head held high. But again, Paul has a bigger aim in mind as he makes this point. He's just told the Corinthians that God has shown his integrity because Christ has fulfilled all his promises. Now he says that God has also shown his faithfulness and integrity towards us by giving us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows God's faithfulness towards us because part of the Spirit's role is to keep us securely in relationship with Christ and to guarantee our future with him. Um, look with me now. Paul, Paul highlights four ways that the Holy Spirit guarantees God's faithfulness towards us in these two verses. First of all, the Holy Spirit establishes us in Christ. The Holy Spirit establishes us in Christ. Verse 21 says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. The word translated here as stand firm is present tense. And it means to put something beyond doubt or to establish. And it's a legal word that was used by sellers to guarantee or confirm a contract. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts confirms that we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is our adoption certificate. He is God's confirmation that we are his children. And the fact that this word is present tense is really important. It means it's ongoing. It's a present reality. The Holy Spirit establishes us in Christ from the moment we're saved and he continues to keep us established in Christ every day. The Spirit is God's guarantee that we will remain in relationship with Christ until he returns. He is God's guarantee that he will never let us go and by his power, he will enable us to endure to the end. So the Holy Spirit establishes us in Christ. The second thing is the Holy Spirit anoints us. The Holy Spirit anoints us. To be anointed means to be consecrated and set apart for service. Maybe at some point you've experienced someone praying that you would be anointed. That's not the worst thing you could pray for someone, but it's more accurate that all Christians are anointed with the Holy Spirit when they're saved. When we're saved, we, we join a community of anointed believers who have been anointed to serve the anointed one. Again, remember Ephesians 4 verse 12. We are called to gospel ministry. We are all called to serve in ways that build up God's church. 
How are we able to do that? Well, we've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit works through us to accomplish God's purposes in the world. God keeps us exactly where he wants us to serve him and build his church. He's anointed us for service. Okay, so God establishes us by the Holy Spirit. He anoints us for service with the Holy Spirit. The third way that the Spirit secures God's people is that the Spirit is a seal of ownership on us. The Holy Spirit is a seal of ownership on us. In the ancient world, seals were stamped in wax on documents in order to mark out who the owner was. Companies today still stamp their seal on their important documents. The Holy Spirit in our hearts is God's seal of ownership. God has marked us as his with the Holy Spirit. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to him. And when we put our trust in Christ, we are no longer our own. But as it says in Ephesians 1.13, we are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit marks us as God's redeemed people. Think of what happens sometimes at second-hand markets. There's lots of unloved and unwanted items of all shapes and sizes on display and unless they're sold they'll, they'll probably be thrown away or destroyed. But when, when someone comes along and buys an item and say they don't want to carry it around all day while they're at the market, the seller will place a big sticker or a label that says sold and they'll put it on the item. And from that point, that item is marked off for the customer to come back and get it at the end of the day. That label marks that that item now has a future. It, ha it now has a home to go to. It now has an owner and it won't be thrown away. At the end of the day, the owner will come back and collect all the items that they bought and take them home. God's Spirit marks us out in the same way. We have been bought with the blood of Christ. By God's grace, we have been marked out for redemption. And the Holy Spirit is that mark that reassures us that our future is secure. He reassures us that now we have an owner. Now we have a home to go to. So the Holy Spirit establishes us in Christ. He anoints us. He is a seal of God's ownership on us. Lastly, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our eternal inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. Look with me again to verse 22. Verse 22, it says, He has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So the Holy Spirit is a down payment of what we will enjoy in the future. He is the first instalment of our inheritance. We know that God will faithfully bring us into the new heavens and the new earth because he has put his spirit in us. Paul picks up this idea again in 2 Corinthians 5 uh, verses 4 and 5. And those verses say this. For while we are in this tent we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. Who has given us the spirit as a deposit. 
guaranteeing what is to come. In this tent, in our earthly bodies, we are groaning and we are burdened. We suffer and we struggle. We all long to put off this earthly body and to put on our heavenly body. And the spirit is the guarantee of that new body we will receive in glory at Christ's return. On that day where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering or, or struggling anymore. There will be no more burdens or groaning. The Holy Spirit guarantees that we will receive that heavenly body in the new creation. The Holy Spirit guarantees that we will live with God forever in his presence. So where does Paul go to demonstrate the integrity of God? He goes to Christ who fulfilled all God's promises. And he goes to the Spirit. The Spirit within us is our guarantee. He is our security of what lies ahead of us. And as Paul demonstrates God's faithfulness, the Corinthians and us too as we read this letter, we're supposed to come to the same conclusion Paul did. Paul is saying, when I think and I contemplate about how God has shown his integrity to us, how can I not have integrity? How could I ever dishonour him by acting dishonestly? The integrity of the one who lives in me by his spirit means that I must have integrity too as I go about ministering in his name. Because God is faithful to me, I will faithfully serve him in all that I do. Brothers and sisters, we don't, we don't need to hear about all the dangers of integrity implosions to scare us into obedience. We need to turn our eyes to the faithfulness of God in saving sinful people like us and allow him by his spirit to transform us. In saying that, how true it is that we often fail to walk in integrity, don't we? Until we receive that perfected heavenly body, time and time again we will fail to live in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. Because we are sinful people who are prone to putting our own agendas first. Even in the opportunities we all have to share the gospel, deep down we can easily want our own glory. So often what we really want is to be seen by others as being impressive and knowledgeable. And in the places where ministry opportunities take place, we can easily damage our witness by the way we speak or how we, how we act towards others in a situation. We don't get it right all the time. Maybe you have messed up and you've been acting in a way that is inconsistent with the faith you profess. If that's you, then remember the promises we have in Christ. Remember that he is faithful to forgive those who come to him in repentance. Remember that he has promised, promised to help you fight sin and to empower you to build up the church. Come to him today knowing that God's promises of forgiveness and his help are yes in Christ. Maybe you're listening to this tonight and you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you are put off Christianity and coming to Christ because it just seems like a lot of no's. And there are a few no's. God requires his people to walk in holiness and to say no to the, the fleeting, unsatisfying pleasures of this world. But maybe you haven't yet considered all the amazing yeses there are for those who come to Christ. God's yeses vastly outweigh his no's. 
He offers a way of redemption from sin and the judgment that it deserves. He offers you an eternal future and an eternal home with him. He offers you a new family and a spirit-filled life of purpose in his service. Why not give your yes to all the yeses that God has secured for you in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all your promises are yes in Christ. We thank you for the integrity that you have shown us. And we thank you, Lord, for the work of your spirit in our hearts, guaranteeing our future, guaranteeing that we have a home with you in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord God, thank you so much. And we pray that anyone hearing this message tonight, Lord, that you would speak to them through your spirit, by your words, that they would say yes to all the yeses that you've accomplished for them in Christ. And we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.